0: I think maybe, maybe we'll start with some people will probably listen to Aaron before. So they probably know who Aaron is. Whereas Ed, I don't know if you want to give a bit of a backstory to yourself. And I don't know whether you want to go pre injury or just post injury, but I think the pre injury, I think is, is relevant as well.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, keep it as brief as possible. because so I seem I've had a few lives by this point, but I am a um, West country boy, born in Bath, um, went to school down here. Naturally being from Bath, big rugby town, ended up playing rugby um, and was fortunate enough to uh, get offered to do it for a living after school. So I signed for Bath and um, which is a bit of a dream come true being from the local town, played there for three years, had some injury issues with in my shoulders nearly retired at 21 after three operations so um I was looking a bit bleak but gave it one last stab in the championship moved up to Doncaster um and then yeah kicked on from there played for 10 years professionally for um Bath Doncaster London Welsh Wasps uh, and then the Dragons um yeah I feel very fortunate to have done it at all um, but in 2017 I suppose just as I was at the peak of my career in terms of playing-wise, age-wise, for my position, I was 27, dived into um, at, a, at a barbecue at a family friend's house, managed to pick the wrong end of the swimming pool to dive into. Uh, not very clever thing to do, especially as I used to be a squad swimmer, but it was one of those feature pools with a waterfall in one end and just misread the depth and um, being a lot bigger and heavier back then, uh, being a rugby player, a lot of weight went through went, went went. To the top of my head to the point where... Uh, the disc in between my C6 and C7 vertebrae at the bottom of my neck exploded, my neck dislocated, and I was left paralyzed from the shoulders down. It was obviously a very scary time. Um, in fact, the next week was terrifying um, because I didn't regain any movement or sensation. I was in intensive care and it got to the point where I was actually told that um, I wasn't going to make any recovery. I couldn't expect any more recovery. I had a complete spinal cord injury. At that point, I could just shrug my shoulder, just about lift lift one of my arms up, but my hands weren't really working either. So... I was facing a very different life than, well, most of us lead, definitely in stark contrast to being a professional sportsman before, Um, and that led to a lot of soul-searching and and set me off off on a different path. I was very lucky um, that I did uh, get some movement back. My toe flicked after day nine, um, despite being told that wouldn't happen, and bit by bit, my body came back to me um, to a certain extent. Uh, I was in hospital for nearly four months. Uh, I was in a wheelchair for six, seven months, um, and then on the one-year mark, I decided to set myself a challenge to climb Snowdon, covered in braces and and splints and um, walking poles and assistance, and um, and that led me into. I mean, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done at that point—a mountain that I used to run up for training when I was playing rugby, and then an now it took me nine hours. But it was a massive occasion for me and I managed to do it. I did it with all of my friends and family and support network that I would had over the previous year, which obviously without them, I would never have made any sort of recovery at all. That got me hooked on the outdoors and the mountains. And um, long story short, since then, uh, we didn't really look back. I say we like me, my family, my wife. Um, and I've been very lucky to be involved in the world of rugby again, but in the, on the media side. So I work for predominantly channel four, but other broadcasters as well, presenting reporting, um, on first of all, rugby now, lots of different things, I did both the recent Paralympics in Tokyo and Beijing, which was an amazing thing to do. And I also started a charity three years ago with my wife, um, And one of our other friends, one of mine and Aaron's other friends, Ollie Barkley, who was a former rugby player, called Millimeters to Mountains, where we take people who've been through trauma, psychological or physical, away to the outdoors and use Mother Nature as a healing tool effectively, um, replicating my own journey uh, and then putting them into programs of, three-year programs of retraining, therapy, work experience, whatever they might need to get their lives back on track. So that's where my passion lies. Um, I suppose... I don't have one particular job and some would argue I've never had a real job before anyway playing sport. So uh, now it's running a charity. I do quite a lot of public speaking um, for hospitals, universities, businesses around resilience and change management and um, which I really enjoy. Uh, And yeah, doing the TV stuff as well. And I also wrote a book last year. Now, none of those things I would ever have said I would have either been capable of doing or even thought it would would happen but they've all come out come from probably the biggest mistake at the time in my life diving into the wrong end of a swimming pool and breaking my neck but it's turned into um yeah it's, it, my 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 life's on a, a very different path but one that I'm thoroughly enjoying and probably find more purpose in now than I ever did before so that's in a nutshell I suppose um and it led me up until up to uh was the most recent thing I did with Aaron? Where it was the second time I nearly died? But I will probably get onto that later on. Yeah, pretty scenic place to possibly die in. Oh yeah, yeah, there could have been worse places.
2: Yeah. Um, so we, we, before you jumped on there, Ed, we just had a very, very brief few minute chat with with Aaron. There. Um, is it fair to say that yourself and Aaron were beer buddies first and foremost? in terms of socialising
1: yeah. and enjoying the Bath lifestyle. Yeah, I'd say so. That's probably fair enough, isn't it, mate?
3: Yeah, I think we, I was saying to the guys, that that's how we kind of knew each other first, really. Bath's a small place, but you were playing rugby in Bath. I was a local lad and we were out partying a fair bit, I'd imagine, at that time. Um, and yeah, that's how we kind of first got to know each other. But you moved away playing sport. And so it was many years before we connected again and not until after your accident, really, that we... Um, kind of crossed paths properly again and ended up uh, becoming very close mates over over the last four or five yeah. years.
1: Yeah, I tend to remember it was because whenever there was nights out in Bath, it would always end up at someone's house and um, you were always one of the people there and so was I. It's like, oh, it's you again, even if we were <laughs> not out. So I think our endure- our endurance was shining through at that stage already. Athletes, athletes. <laughs> I can well believe that
0: actually yeah so that's that's kind of where you were kind of meeting up so how did you end up doing this oh, and we can talk about what this is
1: yeah um, well I mean it, it led from it, it was it came from um, I was starting the charity really and then I started doing rehab and training again with Aaron uh just for my own you know i I'm, I'm I'm constantly rehabbing i'm still I still am so just like paint the picture' I'm st- it's not like I've fully recovered I've still got real movement problems and weakness down my left side. I've got no sensation down the right. I have something called brown cicard syndrome, which means my spinal cord was cut in half, but sort of um down the middle, not horizontally vertically, so I'm hemiplegic, so one side's very different to the other. And then I have the underlying health things to go along with the spinal cord injury, bladder, bowel problems, sexual function issues, temperature regulation issues. Like it's a whole wonderful mixed bag of fun when you do nerve, when it's nerve damage. Um, but Aaron, especially on the physical side, initially, I knew he's one of the top you know, S&C guys in bath. We got on really well, which is important when you're doing all of this sort of stuff, because it's not a dip in and dip out to a class once a week. It's kind of a life lifestyle that like, yeah, I, I have to do my rehab. Otherwise I go the other way. So if you don't, it doesn't matter how good a trainer is. If you don't get on with them, you're going to be put off doing it. So the, Aaron picked a lot of boxes there. Um, and we started working together. And then actually Aaron started, I think, cause we'd gone our separate ways. I started to understand the holistic side that Aaron had added to his S and C background. And um, I'd become very interested in that as well during my recovery um, and then all of the Qigong Aaron was doing, and the Chinese medicine side of things. And he really helped me physically to start with. And then once the charity progressed, I realized the benefit that he could have for our beneficiaries as well. So came on as our health and well-being expert, effectively. So he hasn't just been helping me. He's been in knock-on effect helping the other people involved with the charity. And then... Where, how we ended up in Nepal is the fact that he's big, fit, very strong, and I'm very wobbly. So um, even if I'm stumbling off the side of a cliff, there's not many people who could actually catch me. I'd end up taking a few Sherpas with me probably, whereas Aaron is strong enough to chuck an arm around my head or, or pull me. I actually had some reins attached to me the first time I went to Nepal, and he would just pull, give me a yank back. Um, and then I realized he's really good at carrying stuff as well, so he just carry my bags for me too. So he's multi-purpose really, Aaron. He's um, He's like a Swiss army knife of mates.
2: Yeah, it's like the, um,
3: the, how they use the donkeys to carry everything up.
1: Yeah, like, yeah my, exactly.
3: my nickname in the, the last trip was donkey number 19. We had 18 <laughs> donkeys that carried all our stuff up to base camp and then just donkey <laughs> number 19 that gladly followed Ed wherever he might go. But um,
1: no, and, he, and that's praise indeed coming from the Sherpas. It was the Sherpas you nicknamed that, not me. That's cool. Pretty hard yeah. graph for a Sherpa to
0: start um, bestowing you that. That's for yeah. certain. Yeah. yeah, praise indeed. So That wasn't the first. But you said that wasn't the first mountain you went up. So you went up Snowden,
1: and where did you go from? To, did Snowden as a, a self challenge? Um, and to so raise awareness. The, the initial, yeah, the initial idea behind Snowden was I wanted. So I was doing all of this rehab, and and it was been nearly a year. It was like nine months, and I was like, there was it was multi-purpose. One one was I needed something to aim towards it was very hard spending all of these hours in the gym and in the physio room without a target. Back when I played rugby, you know, you would get injured, you get long-term injuries. I was used to that. I'd had a few operations and six monthers, nine monthers, but you could literally put a pin in the diary at like the next game or, or the next season you were aiming for. And you had a process to follow. But when it was open-ended, I found it really hard eventually to motivate myself. People are, they're going about their normal business again, going about their normal lives. And you're just there in the gym just like what, seeing what you can get back. And I knew by putting a goal in place, it would help motivate me. But the main reason I wanted to do it and the reason I picked the one-year mark was to send a message to all the other people who'd been given a negative or guarded prognosis in hospital that that might not necessarily have to be the case. Hmm. And this has been a bit of an ongoing thing for, for for me and like I just think the narrative that's used a lot of the time in hospital is to protect against litigation but when you've got a long-term recovery in play especially something that's going to take a lot of input from yourself psychologically I mean especially neurological injuries your brain is the biggest part of your neurology so if it's not acting the right way or it's not in the right mindset you literally won't see a recovery or, or you will limit yourself to within the scope of your recovery and just to you know, we've got to emphasize the fact that everyone's scope of recovery is different depending on the injury. You know, if I did actually have a complete injury, I wouldn't be able to make a recovery no matter how hard I tried. But the thing is I didn't have a complete injury and I've proved that. Um, but I was told I did because that was the signs I was showing the prognosis I was given. I was lucky. I had other people feeding in and saying, no, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Um, because there was a bit of a window because of me being a former rugby player, it had been in certain news outlets, and people have reached out to me, former Paralympians, people have been through similar situations and said, don't give in, just keep going, see what happens. Don't die wondering, if, if you know what I mean, to use the, to use the expression. Um, and then I was accused, but not accused, but there's a few people saying you can't give false hope to people. I said, well, "What is false hope even mean? Like The word hope means it might or might not happen. False hope, as a saying, it, should, it doesn't make any sense. So it's either false hope or no hope. And I knew by climbing Snowdon, even if I didn't actually expect to make it up there, but I knew that if people had seen me on my feet, because there would be a bit of press around it, having known that I was told categorically that I would never walk again, it might motivate one person to just keep trying and might make a difference. So that was the main reason behind it. Also, I was being supported by a charity called Restart, which looks after professional rugby players in England, which I was very fortunate. So they were funding my rehab after hospital. Um, don't get me wrong, the NHS saved my life, got me back on my feet. Um, I stood for the first time in hospital. I, was, I left in a wheelchair, but I'd started standing. So I owe them so much. And I still work with a lot of the physios and the doctors. And they're as frustrated by the constraints and the narrative that they have to put out because of this threat of litigation. Anyway, um, there was that element. So there was a goal, goal-setting element for me to keep working. There was a message to send to other people. And also, I wanted to fundraise to try and repay all of the money that Restart had. Um, funded for my rehab and climbing that mountain and being, I opened it up on social media to anyone who wanted to come and join in thinking a couple of people might turn up. There were 70 people on the start line, most of whom I didn't know, which was incredible in itself. It was a proper wake up cause. Oh shit. I'm going to have to actually get to the top now, put a lot of pressure on. Um, But also it made me realize the power of community and opening up and communication. And a lot of people were there for different reasons. And I found myself having, profound open conversations with people I'd never met and it was the first time in my life since well first time since my accident I'd felt a real sense of purpose that some good could come from this situation and then that kicked me on on a a journey of trying to see how much good could come from this situation and I kind of said to myself look if enough good can come from this for other people then by definition I can change that day from a bad day to a good day and that was the mission we went on, and that probably spurred me on to start the charity and to help others. Um, actually, it was a coping mechanism for myself initially, but this turned out to be a win-win. And and there was, of course, a pers- the, the the personal challenge element. I think I would be lying if I said there wasn't a kind of when I, the gauntlet was thrown down when I said I'd never do these things again. So I was like, well, let's try and prove people wrong and and see how far I can get. So I went on from Snowden. Went out to the Alps a few months later, climbed a mountain called Mont Bue, which is sort of three times higher. Again, one of the hardest things I've ever done. And actually the highest I'd ever been in my life and, and probably something I didn't know that I could do when I was able-bodied. So the shackles have been taken off and I haven't really looked back. Went out to Nepal the net in 2019, which Aaron came on as well. Climbed a mountain called Mira Peak, um, which was an immensely profound experience. Uh, went over there initially to support the building of a spinal unit. Which we still support through the charity to the tune of 20 grand a year and Nepal's been a very special place um, for me and now for Aaron because he probably left a part of himself over there um, quite literally um, but it's somewhere that I try and go back every year and try and support um, but also it's now where we have to climb because that's where all the big mountains are and yeah, I'm trying don't... to well I already dropped already planted the seed for Aaron for the next one
2: Yeah you, you, don't get, you just don't get mountains higher than in nepal so you know there you go
1: well that's it isn't it once you get above 6,998 meters which uh is the highest mountain in south america there's only the himalayas you can go to
0: yeah
2: so Aaron, let me yeah. just rewind a little bit so Aaron, were you involved in the rehabilitation right from the outset kind of around the snowden and
3: no it was just after that actually when okay. it kind of moved back to Bath properly and he was uh, setting up the charity Um, we started just kind of talking about some stuff and going through some training and uh, you know actually it was an amazing experience for me because I'd worked with lots of different clients before I'd worked with clients with injuries but I'd never really done um, anything with anyone with a spinal cord injury and it was great to have Ed to work with because actually he was like let's just try stuff let's see what happens you know like we were just trying out different movements I was adapting things every every session and we were getting some really amazing positive gains from his body that Um, he just didn't think he'd have and you know so maybe some restrictions that he would have had with other trainers or with physios where they have to do things by the book a little bit and have to go through through certain processes we were just trying some stuff um you know obviously there was a bit of science behind it and I understood enough about the movement of the body and what I was trying to activate but it really was um, a bit of a trial and error game on lots of things and and that was an amazing experience for me and I do thank Ed for that because I learned a lot um but it was great to see him progress so much in his body and gain so much strength um, the first time I came climbing with Ed, we went out to, uh, the Alps, actually, we were going to, we did a few, um, climatization days in France and then we went to do, um, what is the one Grand Paradiso in
1: Italy? Grand Paradiso. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And, uh, we didn't quite summit that one. It was bad weather, but, you know, just seeing Ed getting out there and doing it, um, and how strong he was after a lot of the training we'd done, you know, it was real satisfaction for me. And, um, you know, it was great to see it, you know, really, really paying off.
0: Did it so you've gone from being professional rubber player, you played in the second row back row uh, so hefty eighteen stone give or take, yeah <laughs> to having a massive yeah. spinal cord injury, so all of a sudden you've lost your identity as a professional, you've lost your movement. And you're now watching what has been a lot of hard work in terms of your physique and physical capacity just ebb away. I mean, injury is horrible. I've had some injuries myself, and it takes a psychological toll irrespective. But you've had a significant injury where everything has changed. I am immensely impressed that that you've gone from, from that to where you are. There's obviously been a massive physical journey, but I'm guessing the psychological journey, emotional journey, and clearly the neurological journey has been even bigger.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think you, you touched on a pretty good point there. It was in the first three weeks I, um, I lost the best part of 25 kilos of lean muscle because I couldn't move so I just completely atrophied and I was watching myself every day change into a different person and yeah thinking god all those hours I've spent in the gym for the last 15 years um, literally going down the toilet but it you know and and at the, at the time that was really hard to to deal with psychologically, I think it's it's taken a long time to get over that completely. I think subconsciously, if I'm honest, because you get so used to being a certain way, you get so used to being that big bloke who can get to the bar easily or um, you know, carry things for people, help people out. You're the one called upon, and all of a sudden, you're the one that everyone's having to do everything for, and that part of your identity is left. And I think now I can look back and I realise that's a great, that was a great mental process to go through a very difficult one at the time, but it made me rethink about who I am. And actually the fact that I identified as a big 18 stone rugby player, my identity was wrapped up in that, but I was never who I really was. I was just Ed. And that was a stage in my life where I was carrying a lot of muscle and, uh, and in that stage and I had to draw back and think about who Ed actually is. Um, but it's not a linear process. It's not a flick of a switch. There's ups and downs along the way. Um, and you develop processes to help deal with that psychologically. And part of that has been in the mountains and a big part of it has been helping other people and seeing some purpose from what's been going on. Uh, but it, the identity piece early on was very difficult to cope with. Having said that, um, there was a bit of a turning point pretty early on where it was. And like I said, it wasn't a linear process from that point, but after I was told you're never going to walk again. And, and I realized then um, he actually said, hopefully you can get enough use back to be independent. And that word independent made me realize that it wasn't just about me. I'd been thinking about myself up until that point. Like I was just, you know, why has this happened to me very much in the victim mindset of like, this isn't fair. Life's not fair. What have I done to deserve this? And, Um, and then after he said independent, I realized, hang on a minute, if you don't do everything you can, it's not just you that's going to suffer. It's going to be anyone who's got to care for you for the rest of your life, your wife, your mum, whatever it might be. Um, and I just said to myself, I've got to do everything I can to get better now. And if nothing happens, at least in six months time or a year's time, if I'm still lying in this bed, I can look myself in the mirror and go, I've done everything I can. This was out of my hands. But if I know I've cut corners, and not done what I can. And now it's affecting other people's lives. I won't be able to live myself. So that was a turning point and a massive one psychologically for me as well. And the next big one that gave me a huge amount of perspective was moving from intensive care where I was very sort of isolated in my own side room and living in my own little world to the spinal unit in Salisbury. And very quickly I realized that there was 40 other people in there of varying degrees of, of, damage, if you like. And, um, I was somewhere in the middle probably, uh, there were people who were better off than me, not as injured. There were also people who were way worse off than me with complete quadriplegia, some with you know, permanent ventilators they can't even breathe for themselves and with no scope of recovery. And at least I was making progress by that point. It was small. There was no. There was no – it definitely wasn't guaranteed I'd walk again or any of those things, but I was seeing progress. And I just thought to myself, you know, like you've got an opportunity and a lot of people here don't, and who are you to sort of – feel sorry for yourself and beat yourself up and not give it the best shot when a lot of people don't even have that chance okay. and it was a big mindset shift I think that stayed with me it. ever since
2: sorry I think that's a, a really interesting point we maybe naively but maybe it's just your frame of reference and I know kind of Ed you've, your frame of reference has changed and you've just described that uh, we talk a lot about on this podcast with various different people within health and fitness and the world of just being active in terms of not being limited by your physical capability to be able to do things even if it's just carrying the shopping putting the suitcases in the loft you know those simple things are actually a lot of people who don't have injuries or have anything wrong per se can't do yeah and I think there's yeah. there's that frame of reference shift that maybe sometimes for a lot of people it takes something quite major and maybe something quite catastrophic to, to to open the mind to that and realize that there is another world or another side of capability, and the perspective shifts a bit if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah for sure it's it, it I mean, it's another cliche quote, but it's so true. It's like, if you, you don't appreciate things until they're gone a lot of the time, you just take things for granted. You're on that hedonic treadmill. You're used to the things you've got. Even when you get more, you're very quickly used to it and you normalize it. And I think everyone should spend a month in a wheelchair. I mean, the amount of respect it gives you for having legs and just being able to step over a curb, something you take for granted your whole life. You know, I couldn't feed myself for a long time. I couldn't brush my own teeth. I couldn't drive a car. I couldn't step up, go upstairs. So as those things started to come back, I've never looked at them the same way again. I can't run around Run around now. You know, I'll never probably be able to play, play football with my kids, those sorts of things, which you'd be like, that's devastating. But actually, when you've gone back past that and you're working back up to it, just being able to walk down the stairs, get in my car and drive off by myself without having to be looked after now makes me happy. Before, it would take a lot more than that to keep me happy. So I'm very grateful for that perspective shift. And you're right. It's something that often I, I unfortunately only happens when something catastrophic, when you've had that co- catastrophic, um, mental shift and, and realization, but it's one of the main positives that's happened. That's come from, come from my accident.
0: So it, it leads me on to question to Aaron. So during kind of the rehab, uh, and doing the physical stuff, were there times where you'd have a breakthrough, so there's emotional highs, but also trying to put Ed back together emotionally when he perhaps couldn't do things and got really frustrated?
3: Joe, you know Ed was actually really great to work with because he'd get frustrated at himself and then push himself harder and get bigger breakthroughs. So there's very few times where he would just he would he wouldn't give up. He wouldn't give up on anything you know, if we were trying to do a move, he would be suggesting other ways of just tweaking it slightly as well. Like, I think I can do it this way or we change it. So that frustration actually drove him to keep pushing on. So there wasn't any times where he had a big breakdown and we had to kind of emotionally support him through that at all. It was just like the mindset of, right, right, we'll just try it in a different way. And we always found another variation of doing the move that worked. Um, that's quite amazing because, you know, I work with lots of different people, but you're the, you know, Ed's the only person I've I've had that has that that kind of mindset just to keep pushing. And I didn't know him a huge amount before the accident, so um, what I hear was he was always like top of the fitness game in, in every club that he played for. You know, pre seasons, you know, would turn up um, pretty ropey on some mornings, bit, bit hungover, but he'd smash the fitness tests heavier than anyone. So there's that mindset there that probably came through. So I couldn't tell you about the stuff before. Um, but I know that since training with Ed, like the, the mindset is a huge bit and going up mountains, you know, watching what he has to do with his body, literally dragging one leg behind him um, for hours and hours on end and, and the most recent trip, you know, really physically demanding. But I mean, I was you know, on those trips, we'll talk about that later, but I was physically completely gone, you know. I only know what Ed's going through and it's the mindset that just keeps him pushing in. Um, you know, it was a real pleasure to work with someone like that because, you know, we had we had a great time. We saw a lot of improvements. Um, and, uh, you know, we just enjoyed, enjoyed that training. Yeah. together. What, what I think, I think oh, sorry. Um, the,
1: sorry, I was just going to say, I think the, the thing is, by the time I got to working with Aaron, like I said, it was, it was over a year after my accident, I was already in such a headspace of appreciation for how far I've managed to go. And the fact that I was even in a drip gym, even if I was falling over and unable to do the things I could do before, of course there was that bit of frustration, but I think, those processes, uh, those psychological processes where he was hitting dark times and did need pulling out had already, were already way behind me because I was so m- much further down the line than I ever thought I would be. So Aaron didn't have to put up with angry, broken-down Ed. He just got the, yeah, this is great. Let's see what we can do version, I suppose. That's fair.
0: Uh, do you think it helped having gone through the rehab before that you, ha- that you were physically fit? so there's that muscle memory do you think that helped
1: yeah there's no doubt um there's no doubt it did help i think initially what really helped was um so if if someone can't move for enough for months or weeks or months like i could they'll, they'll use they'll lose so much muscle mass that they'll then have to even if they get some movement back they'll have to spend Ages getting the strength back to even stand up again. Whereas I was carrying a lot of bulk. So even though I'd lost all that muscle, I still had the strength there when things came back to be able to get straight back on my feet, even though it was a lot more difficult. So I didn't have to go through that rebuild building phase as, as much. So that was one benefit, but also, you know, being in a, being in a gym and and, and being in a physio room is an alien to me. You know, I've had, there was my seventh operation after 10 years of rugby. So I've had long rehabs before, um, you know, I've always said, it, it, you know, if it was sitting in front of an Excel spreadsheet for eight hours a day, I'd probably still be in a wheelchair. Whereas some other people would find that really easy. It's just quite fortunate that it fell into my wheelhouse. If you like recovering from this, now, that's not to say it made it a huge amount easier, but it just normalized it for me. Like even now. I'll subconsciously go to the gym five times a week, even if I'm doing rehab or training. And I'd be doing it if I didn't have to do this because it's what I've always done. It's what I've always known. It's just what I need to do now is something that that comes second nature. So there's no doubt it did help. And I think also the psychological side, and it's something that probably professional sports people don't give themselves enough credit for when they're scared about going into the real world. But a lot of them are by nature of sport, quite resilient in the, in the, in, in the space of dealing with setbacks. Um, you know, every week's different. You might get selected, you might not, you'll win or you'll lose and you've got, it's about picking yourself back up so you can perform the next week. And like I said, it wasn't linear progression. It wasn't on my toe flicked and I just went like that. There were times I went the other way as well, but I was used to having to stay in the fight, um, and be competitive with it. So there's no doubt that it, it certainly helped. Um, I think. So,
2: the Himalayas. Let's, let's talk about the Himalayas. Um, because I think, talking about everything we've, we've, we've discussed in terms of the limitations and the, the, the rehabilitation and the, the support that you've had, and then, then with Aaron, after um, overcoming the odds, if you like, and getting yourself up Snowden, being told that you weren't going to be able to do that, to being able to essentially go up some of the world's biggest peaks i mean that's that's something that people who haven't had trauma or injury wouldn't even dream of doing because they don't think they're able to do it or they're not able to do it let's let's just be honest some people just aren't able to do that how do you train for that as a normal person (laughs) and then how do you train for that sorry wrong wrong use of the word normal but as someone who is <laughs> <That's> fully, <fair. laughs> fully physically able in terms of you know not having been through uh what you've been through in terms of injury um how, how do you train for that anyway and then how do you adapt your training to be able to do that as someone who has limitations shall we say forgive me if i'm kind of offending no you. no no mate, don't <laughs> worry about into. the lingo
1: honestly i i get it wrong all the time when i go out to the paralympics we get a new spreadsheet every time it's like even between <laughs> the summer and the winter paralympics like this is what you can and can't say now it's like hang on a minute <laughs> this is coming from shall we say able-bodied which you're not allowed to say anymore apparently people to tell people with disabilities how we're allowed to speak about our own disabilities we normally just sort of ignore it because it's it's you know it's a minefield and it's just some someone will get annoyed on your behalf but I mean, Aaron will tell you we most people with disabilities have got a very dark sense of humour, and the things we probably talk call each other behind closed doors probably aren't repeatable. So, yeah, no, I know, I know what it's like um, training-wise. I mean, it's been a it's been a journey of discovery, really, because there's not a roadmap for someone with incomplete quadriplegia climbing above five thousand meters so it's kind of been a learning process that we've got wrong in the past and and every will climb we go on we learn something new and and i remember the first time we did mirror peak i just trained as if i was training for an ironman or something i just got as fit as i could and as lean as i could and that was turned out to be the worst possible thing i could do i mean we did get up mirror peak but it was a very different mountain to, but I was absolutely wrecked. I was burnt because the way I move, because it's so inefficient, I was burning about 10,000 calories a day, which of course you can't replace. Um, so, and I wasn't carrying the extra weight to support that. So now, actually, for the high mountains, the longer expeditions, a lot of your fitness will be done in the process of getting up the mountain. And you're not covering big distances every day because the altitude's changing so much. So you have to acclimatize the big fitness push comes at the end but by that time you might be three weeks into your trip um so actually you're better off getting yourself as strong and healthy as possible in terms of um muscular endurance your tendons your ligaments getting your body in good shape and carrying some extra weight actually getting a bit fatter before you leave which was music to my ears obviously because that's a lot more fun than having to try and get as ripped as possible before a trip um and Sorry, can it's, I just... again like i said it's
2: can I just join yeah, Sorry, just to clarify something you just said there, because that was quite interesting. You just said, correct me if I'm wrong, um, in effect, the first part of the climb is the start of the training, or is the training? <laughs>
1: no in terms of fitness it is in terms of cardiovascular endurance um you do some big you do a thousand meter day in terms vertical thousand meter day which might take nine or ten hours um that's going to be a heavier cardio session than anything you could replicate back home at the gym so yeah. yes you want to go in fit more important that you go in healthy um and arguably a lot of people who are doing big endurance events um so so like ultra marathons and things like that they'll tell you they're not Healthy when they enter that race. They're fit and they're to purpose for that, getting the fastest possible time across that distance. But their healthiest they'll be will be in their, you know, their off season or probably a few weeks out from the trip from, from when they're when they're then they haven't got themselves and pushed themselves to a point where they've got to those those limits. And these these expeditions, the high altitude things, they're, you know, they're months long sometimes, um, certainly weeks long. And it's more about preservation than anything, especially for me because of the extra strain and, that I'm putting through my body. And so um, training to, to answer your question is, yes, it's getting it's, it's obviously having a good base level of fitness. Most of it is psychological endurance when you get to that altitude. Um, muscular endurance is very important. In fact, Aaron can probably answer all these questions better than me, to be honest. But from a personal perspective, it's about trying to... Um, get as healthy as possible and get my body in as good enough shape and carry enough weight into it so that by the time the actual summit push comes, um, I'm not just a, you know, bag of bones and, and really struggling.
3: Yeah. Go on then, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, I'll follow up on that because <laughs> the first time we went out and we did Marrow Peak both of us were amazingly fit. We were, we were just burning so many calories. We're both big guys. Not your typical mountaineer shape, I would say. Um, and, you know, we had a big, big day on the mountain one day where I think we did – we did like eleven or twelve thousand well Ed did eleven or twelve thousand calories. it was just and it wasn't replaceable, and that actually knocked us both out for two or three days. We were just really drained really low, and that was still on the you know, on the few days walking into the mountain you know so um that was something we learned a lot from, and for this uh, last, most recent one, um we really focused on nutrition that was a big what well, was one of our biggest parts, so like we we obviously ate really good food leading into it. we both went in a bit heavier. Um than last time. But then when we were on the mountain, it was like, right, what are all the supplements we need to have every day? Where's our green powders? Where's our, our, our vitamin tablets? Where's our nutrition stuff? We got all that really on point so that we, you know, we preserved our body in the best way. We had enough energy and we were refueling our tissues. We could repair and recover. That was also helping us with our sleep. Um so we actually, as you know, for that summit push, I felt pretty good going into that. Um for, for that most recent trip so uh, yeah the fitness obviously is a big part of it and like Ed says you do get a lot of good fitness from that walk in as the, as the altitude um, gradually takes a bit more effect and you're doing some of those longer walking days which aren't necessarily so, so, um, so intense but they're just long long days on the body so you get that nice endurance uh, on the joints and on the, on the muscles but yeah that was I think the nutrition was the biggest part that we changed this year that made the biggest difference
0: What about Personal admin, so, Ed, you already said that you have no sensation down one side. So I'm guessing there's an issue with you can't feel if you're getting a blister, if you've got an issue with that. And I'm guessing that there are issues around, you have already said kind of touch on your bowels and your bladder, and kind of doing that sort of personal admin and making sure that the food you're having is still allowing those to function optimally shall we say because what you don't want is loads of stuff that's going to give you high energy but bung you up because that's just a nightmare
1: as well yeah i mean inevitably you're going to end up bunged up at altitude i think everyone has to deal with that but i end up bunged up at sea level so um yeah that's a constant battle again that was part of the nutrition change um we made sure we had a lot of different different foods we took a lot of supplements over made sure we we're getting enough fiber and staying hydrated and all of those sorts of things um, but yeah, bladder wise, that is something I constantly have to manage. And again, there's been a learning process. I have, I have to wear a drainage bag, so I don't have an internal cat catheter. but, um, I'll wear like a condom catheter effectively and a drainage bag on my leg. And actually, you know, it's actually quite beneficial for mountaineering because, um, I've got an extra bag to fill before I have to actually take any clothes. on when you're at 7,000 meters. The last thing you want to be doing is getting things out that might end up getting frozen off at minus 30 degrees, which I don't have to deal with. I, I actually have an access point in my trousers, which have been adapted by, um, Burkhouse or an ambassador for, they've been a great supporter for me in terms of adapting kit. And I just empty my drainage bag out the side of my leg and then put it back in. So I'm waiting to see how long it's going to take before people catch onto this and just start using them themselves at, at high altitude. But it's quite useful Um, and then the one thing I've got to be careful of is in like the tent at night, I've got to make sure the drainage bag is in the sleeping bag with me. There's been a couple of times where it's been outside the sleeping bag and frozen. Um, but you get used to, I don't know, I just, I'm used to that sort of care. It might seem very alien for someone else, but what I do need to make sure is I've taken enough equipment with me. It's not something you can just get hold of up a mountain or actually in other countries. So in terms of organization, and kit list, which is something I'm very much struggled with. You just have to ask my parents, my wife, before when I was playing rugby, um, it's something I have to be a lot hotter on now. And actually, that's actually spilled over into everyday life to a certain extent. But in terms of being organized, even when I, like, tomorrow I'm going to London, I've got, I take quite a lot of medical equipment with me, like spare convenes, catheter bags, um, medication all of those sorts of things and if you forget them you can end up in a bit of a annoying situation but um in terms of the mountains weirdly the drainage stuff has helped um the other one of the other issues i did have to deal with is temperature regulation so this is what can be probably throws up the biggest challenge um up there uh, especially because my hands are a lot weaker now so when it's cold they basically effectively stop working so aaron spends a lot of time putting my boots on and off um, or helping me with buckles or doing zips up. And, um, he's, he's an extra pair of hands for me when I, when I'm up the mountain, which is, I I would really struggle, struggle without. So, um, and also because of that, I don't sweat from the chest down anymore. I overheat really easily too. So I've really got to manage, um, my temperature and I do that with what I'm wearing on my head or what I've got around my neck. Um, and actually Berghaus again have adapted jackets. So I've got ventilation zips so I can dump heat from my shoulders, um, without having to take too much kit off. So like I said, we've had to work this out as we go. There's no sort of, there's no roadmap to follow, but it's been an interesting process and hopefully something like some of the stuff we've adapted and changed and, and, um, we've proven, you know, it doesn't mean you just can't do something. There is often a way around it. You know, it's thinking laterally around these things and not just giving up and, Hopefully they can benefit other people moving forward. And um, there's lots of like, someone saw the the access zip I've got in my thigh to get to my drainage bag. And they're diabetic and they have to give themselves insulin jabs. And they really struggle when they're out when they're out in bad weather and they've got all these layers on. They're like, oh, that'd be really good just so I can get to my thigh and and jab myself. And you don't think about stuff like that. But um, no, it's been a fun, interesting process to try and work all these things out because a lot of the medical implications or implications I have because of my condition certainly don't lend themselves to being up at the top of a mountain.
2: No, but your personal admin becomes relative to what your personal admin needs to be. Exactly. You know, it just sort of becomes what you need to do. And other people who have whatever condition they may have, have their own, like, like, like you mentioned, type one diabetics, it just becomes completely normal. And I get yeah, And that's, evolved with you over time in terms of what you need to do and it's not weird <laughs> it's not this yeah. isn't, this
3: isn't crazy yeah.
1: no it also and, became, and it's compared compar- com- it,
3: it became pretty relative to me as well because you know we, we had to talk about <laughs> the issues that might arise and we, you know we talked about how to you know if i need to empty your, your bag and things like that for you and how i was going to attach it all because we didn't know how cold you were going to get up there um, the first mountain we did in the Pool Peak, your you know, your hands completely froze basically. And we both got some frostbite in our fingers on that trip because we were up at extremely high altitude and um really very, very cold. And we were having issues with your harness. So I had to keep taking my gloves off to try and do your harness up and yeah. you know, we just got really, really cold from that. So you wouldn't have physically been able to do anything um with your hands if it had been that cold and that high. But you had some amazing gloves this time that actually meant I didn't have to do quite so much physical stuff for you. Yeah. Uh, some some great kit that you've you've had to kind of figure out over time to utilise. Um, I mean, another big thing that you have an issue with is because of your um, leg strength, squatting is very difficult. And when you're in the Himalayas, everything is nice long drops. So um, yeah. the first trip we went on, I don't I think it had maybe been five or six days since Ed had managed to go use the bathroom. I and normally it's like two or three days anyway, right? But five or six days in, and there's a physical uh physical bulge on your abdomen and a lot of discomfort uh so myself and one of the other guys we went into the the, uh, the long drop and we fashioned a harness for ed so we got some rope and a ski pole we found a hole through the wall put the ski through pole through the wall up over a beam and he had a handle to hold on to so he could so he could use the uh use the long drop
1: so there's a lot of fun yeah, that's a good to find around. <laughs> yeah. Sean. to your point though, i think it's a good one of um you just get used to get used to things. And I think that's important in, in life, because if I th- if you think about it, comparisons, the problem. And they, I, I speak uh, to a lot of people like the Paralympics. And if someone's been born with a disability, it's very different to acquiring a disability. This is something I learned when I was out there. Even people with severe disabilities, if they had them since birth. They don't. It's not a thing for them. It's just, you know, they're just a bit different, but nothing annoys them because it's all they've ever known. Mm. And getting over that comparison is quite important because we can only play the cards with dealt and it's, it's more of an acceptance. Like if everyone had to use catheter bags all humans, they would not even be a thing. You know, there wouldn't be no embarrassment ar- ar- around it. It's just because it's different. Um, than before, so it doesn't have to be, and it doesn't. And so I think that was a very good point you made. You know, it, people get normalized things and get used to things, and actually that's a big part of recovery. You know, it's that acceptance piece and just being like, I'm just different than I was before, but that's absolutely fine because everyone's different and everyone has to face their own different. Uh, they, everyone has to face their own challenges and 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 things to overcome in life. And just my set's now a bit, a bit, you know, is is a bit different to to your average average person, but it doesn't make it any worse or any better.
2: No, I totally agree. Yeah, and I think that can be applied to everything. <laughs> Personally, I think that is a, yeah, in a, yeah mm-hmm. it's something that on a day to day basis, you walk down the street past people, you have different levels of what's normal and what you deal with and what you can and can't do, but you just don't know it and you don't yeah. see it. Everyone's yeah,
1: yeah. Everyone's got that. Yeah, and that's why you can't judge anyone. You can't like you never know what's going. Someone's going through, and and especially when. And and a big, it's been a big opening, uh, eye-opening thing for me with all of our beneficiaries because we don't, I realise that this benefit, recovering from trauma, it's not, it would have been obvious to go down the spinal cord injury route for me. And, but a happy person in a wheelchair is much better than a sad person walking around. It's about getting people back into a positive mental state. So we deal with people with psychological trauma as well. And we've taken people away with PTSD and a lot of our beneficiaries suffer with anxiety or, or, or and. I look at them, and on the on the face of it, you know, you, you'd walk past them in the street, or you could even know them, and you wouldn't think anything was wrong. And then you get to know them, and you realize what they're having to deal with on a daily basis. And I would, I and then I feel very grateful for having a spinal cord injury and not having to deal with some of the psychological trauma that people have to go through on a daily basis. And you just don't know, you know. So there's no point feeling sorry for yourself. Everyone's going through shit, and it's just about getting on and, and accepting. The the hand that you're dealt and playing it the best way you can, and not judging anyone else for for their hand, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely.
0: I think that's a really important thing. You do just kind of have to, it's easy to take it on with it, and that's perhaps a bit too rough and ready, but it is trying to make that acceptance is perhaps the best word I can think of, and then look
1: to see what you can do from there we're we're all just lucky to be alive we're all lucky to be conscious beings on this planet in the first place and i think that's obviously the oversight and the perspective shift that might happen when you're not almost not alive for a bit and you have to contemplate those things but you know we spend too long looking at the things that we don't have and the things that we can't do compared to other people and just completely missing how lucky we are to even be here never mind have people that love us have food on the table you know not have a permanent tracheotomy you know, no one ever thinks about that until they have to yeah. um, and I think it's important to think about those things from time to time definitely
0: uh, and you've had the, ben- the benefit yeah, there's benefit of being able to see what could happen uh, and what has happened it does really just put things into perspective going back to the mountain Aaron what were your biggest challenges for you being on the mountain?
3: Um, the most recent time we were up there, uh, I was very aware that we were part of a small group and I have a very specific role in that trip, which is to assist Ed and to try and help him get to the top as best as I can. So there is pressure on that to kind of uh, make sure that I'm, I'm always on hand, I'm carrying the extra kit, um, taking on the extra weight, making sure we've got the nutrition ready, um, and you don't want to mess it up because, you know, you're, you're effectively looking after other people in quite a dangerous environment. So, um, that was a big challenge because, you know, there were some days when I was definitely carrying more than I should have done and I felt it, but I didn't want to tell anyone. <laughs> I didn't want to say it because that was what I thought I felt my role was. Um, and we had to get the kit up there regardless, right? We, we needed the extra kit. We, the big thing for Ed and I is water. You know, Ed, um, gets through a lot of water. Um, and when we're up in the mountains, um, you know, burning so many calories, he needs more than me. But, you know, a, kilo, um, a liter of water weighs basically a kilogram, right? So having five or six bottles of water on me, plus all my other kit, was quite a lot when you're up at that altitude. Um, and we were still not getting enough water in us. Um, and so there was always a bit of a struggle to get that balance right. Have, you know, how much water do I need? How much does Ed need? Have we got enough kit with us? There was always a lot to think about. Um, yeah, that was, that was quite tough. It just felt like, you know, there's, there's, without Ed putting pressure on me, there just felt like there was a pressure. And he would never put that on me, but I did know that I was there for a reason, right? Yeah, so the Tour de
2: France just finished two days ago. Um, from what you described there, Aaron, you're the ultimate domestique, the person who carries, carries everything, carries the bottles, delivers to the team leader. <laughs> Get yeah. make sure yeah. things are things are there, and is yeah. actually an invaluable and essential component in in the team. It's it's not to be underestimated that role.
1: Yeah, didn't invite him for his good looks. <laughs> I did. His... I did partly. not <laughs> 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 No, just... the like no the but it's, he's, it's 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 not just carry. It's not just carrying stuff. You know the makeup of a group when you're going through something like that is really important. And there was just four of us. Um, and I knew two Aaron being one of them, the last member of our videographer pulled out late. So it was a bit of a shot in the dark, but I knew I had to meet the the guy who's coming out to film before we went because you, you, you could have been in a tent with each other for for that long. And it's the psychological side just as much, if not more than the physical side that Aaron does so well, you know, it's just that calming, presence for everyone for all of us and and um that makes a big difference too i think in hindsight and this is you know we learn stuff on every trip we'll probably have another sherpa with another climbing guide with us to to take more of the weight because even i was carrying too much weight in the end you know we were probably down to our bare bones not bare bones but we were a very lean squad if you like Um, whereas if we had more resources and we could have had another climbing guide or two, then we could have offloaded most of our weight. Like a lot of people do when they're going to climb these big mountains, they're literally just follow the leader. Whereas we were very much self sufficient. Those camps weren't already set up. We were going and setting them up. No one had been on that mountain for two and a half years. It wasn't just follow the, follow the line of people to the top. It was very much an expedition, which is part of the magic of it, but is also the reason it was so difficult in the end. Um, but again, there's learnings from that. It made it more of an adventure. We probably wouldn't have ended up in the situation we did, and the thing we had to go through that's probably been the most formative experience um, was definitely the most formative experience of that trip, and is you know probably the second most formative experience of my life. Um, that wouldn't have happened without all of those challenges we had to go through and we had to overcome. So it's not regretting them, but it's not wanting to repeat them and learning from them. So when we get when, when we move forward and go on to the next mountain.
2: I think it's worth at this point just mentioning what we're actually Mm. talking about Um, you touched (laughs) on their head in terms of um, the first people to do it within sort of two, two and a half years um, which was the first team on forgive my pronunciation here um, Himlung himal yeah is that right? bang on Um, which is um, over 7,000 metres in the Himalayas and that's that's a big Big old mountain.
1: It is a big old mountain, and we were trying to break the height record. Someone with a spinal cord injury—that was the main reason we were going over there. But of course, we were trying to summit this mountain. However, I've got this thing about going off grid and going to remote places, um, to areas that, and really among yourself in the culture. You know, I think we didn't—you know—we didn't see any other westerners for a long time. We were with the Nepali people. It was a proper expedition. We were so remote. At one point, we we're in a, the last village we reached was a place called Fu that was <clears throat> had a big monastery there, um, but actually. The Nepal, Nepal didn't even know it existed until 30 years ago when someone was flying over in a helicopter and goes, hang on a minute, what's that down there? And they went and landed and realized there'd been a settlement there for hundreds of years trading with the Tibetans. So that's how remote we were, which was amazing. Wow. It was one of the coolest parts of the trip. But it did mean, it did throw up a load of other challenges. You know, Camp 3 wasn't set up for us. They couldn't set it up um, that year well, because no one had been there. So we had to make the summit push from Camp 2. So we we're effectively trying to put two days into one. Um, and the route through the glacier field wasn't mapped because there hadn't been that footfall, and the whole glacier had obviously moved in the last two and a half years. Hence, why we ended up all falling through crevasses at certain points. At uh, certain points, which obviously was a big, another big spanner in the works. So, for all the reasons, it was so amazing with that remoteness. It was also the reason, probably, why we didn't end up summiting. However, we did get to, you know, six thousand eight hundred meters, which is a new world record. It was an incredible, and we probably had. Well, we definitely had a more bonding experience with the mountain than we would have if we had just cruised to the top and held up a flag, you know, I think they're amazing. That's an amazing thing to do. And we've been there. We've done it before we did it on mirror peak, but they're not the stories you tell in the pub when you're 60, no one's ever telling everyone about the time that everything went right. And the sun was out and it was great. And we, it's, it's the epics you end up in it's when things go wrong and you have to learn something about yourself and you have to dig in together and, and literally keep each other alive, which is, which is, what happened um that night on the mountain yeah i was gonna
2: i I was gonna ask you to explain that yourself Oh, sorry explain that final night when you couldn't be rescued
3: (laughs) and you had to hunker down for what, of a better word
1: yeah so do you want to do that
3: yeah we'd we'd um we'd really been on a long summit push um uh, I'll talk very briefly, we were on something called a Juma line which is a um, fixed line into the mountain and we had harnesses on and you have this handle effectively that only slides one way so you slide it up the line it locks in so you can kind of pull yourself up um, which is tough for anyone but Ed with um, not as much use of limbs um, and already kind of dragging himself places didn't need to put so much fatigue on his upper body as well doing that and I think we were on that line for probably 7 or 8 hours at that point going up is that right, Ed?
1: Yeah. So the night before when we got to high camp, we got there about 6 p.m. And we had to leave for the summit at 10 p.m. So we tried to get, they were like, try and get a couple of hours of sleep, which of course didn't happen. Uh, didn't happen for me anyway. I think Aaron and Nick like half an hour. And then by the time we got to the 6,800 meters, it was midday the next day. So we hadn't been to sleep for 36 hours or something. Um, on the and so we'd been pretty much going for that long. We'd obviously run out of water, and food because it'd taken a lot longer than we thought. So it got to the point where um, the decision had to be made to turn around. And I, I've never I mean, Aaron witnessed it. You know, you asked a, earlier if there's ever ever seen me have a breakdown and get annoyed, but there was probably that moment then where I had to make. I just knew something in my mind that I couldn't keep going because if I did, there was a chance that. It was all gonna end very badly and I knew Aaron wouldn't stop unless I stopped. So I felt responsible for both of us, um, but it did involve a bit of a break, a bit of a meltdown, didn't it, Aaron?
3: And that was that was a tough thing to, to watch because at this point, we are probably only 300 meters from the top. We could almost see the summit, but that could have taken another four or five hours, maybe longer at the kind of pace we were going. It really was three steps and stop, three steps and stop. It was exhausting. Being on this kind of line where you're using all your upper body as well as your legs is you know it's really physically demanding, and you know I was definitely on my last legs, but to see Ed collapse in front of me and just kind of be like this is we have to turn back now because you know he, he thought we could make it to the top, but it's actually can we get back down safely? We're very aware that we've still got kind of a good six to eight hours to get back to the next camp if we're at a good pace and if we can make that, and it was going to be getting dark soon. Um, and you know, the implications that come with that as well, um, as well as not having any food or water really left. So, you know, we had to make the decision to turn back and, um, Ed was already pretty burnt out. Um, his nervous system was showing signs of being completely done in and turning around and walking down a mountain. Uh, it's that negative movement on the muscle tissue, his legs were just giving way. There was no strength left to do that negative, um, eccentric contraction. So um, it was take a step, collapse, slide down the mountain a bit. You know, it was really, um, really pretty dangerous. And our guide was working hard to try and uh, kind of make rope um, harnesses. To and we were trying to winch it down, but it, it was really difficult, and nothing was was really working. So what maybe could have taken us two or three hours to get down took about four or five again to the shoulder of the mountain. It was just again ex- an exhausting experience, jumping over crevasses and sliding. 10 to 15 meters down the mountain on the other side. I mean, we were so lucky at that point not to have any injuries as well, because um, you know it really was <clears throat> really dangerous. And it got to a point where Ed was like, I physically don't know how to get down this last bit of the mountain. And I was like, I actually don't know how you're going to do this either. But it, yeah. it was like, right, you just this is the only option we've got, is so you're going to have to crawl backwards, dig your spikes in one step, then the next step.
1: Yeah, use do the your- ice axes and just backwards crawl. Yeah. It was um, yeah, it was pretty gnarly, and also we're we're at a height there where you can't get rescued by a helicopter, so you have to get down to about six thousand meters because they can't fly that high. So there was no option. Um, but it was when we got to the bottom of the of the to to back to the crevasse field, which was just above six thousand meters that um what we had walked across before and fallen through a few crevasses our, one of our mountain guides went off to look around the corner just walked about 15 meters and then just disappeared through a crevasse um not roped up so um we could hear him luckily shouting from from the bottom of this crevasse so we knew he was still conscious or alive um, but when big raj our other guide got over to him he was about 10 meters deep in this crevasse he'd fallen a hell of a long way luckily he hadn't broken anything it was just his head torch down the bottom of this crevasse and big Roger managed to rescue him pull him out um but then we realized we couldn't go anywhere because the snow we'd walked across which was frozen the night before was now soft and there were crevasses everywhere and no one knew the route through so and i was absolutely done like to the point where I got to that I got it was just it would have been it was more dangerous to move than it was to stay still, and we were all done big um Beetle who's our cameraman who's probably you know one of the fittest out, out of out of the whole group, including the Nepalese, was then throwing up blood so throwing up showing signs of um pulmonary edema, which is obviously not good. So we sat tight, Aaron fell through a crevasse as well, which is quite, I don't know, I shouldn't laugh, but Aaron fell through this crevasse, but he was roped up and I was the one on the other end of the rope, but I'm like, I've got nothing left. So I'm like, uh, he's like, Ed. so I'm like trying to crawl backwards up this hill to try and help him. And he knows he's not going to fall down it, but he's dangling, looking down and legs dangling in blackness, managed to get him out of there. And then we called for a helicopter. So, we're at six thousand meters, so technically they could be they could come and get us, but the helicopter straight away said, "You're two hours away from Kathmandu because we'd gone a long way up onto the tibet border. We'd walked about a week to get there By the time we get to you, it'll be dark. The helicopter can't fly around those mountains because it can't fly above them because they're so high, so you're gonna have to hold on till morning, so we had no food, no water. we've been going for well over thirty six hours by this point, point. and um." the temperatures were going to get down to about minus 30. So they said, you're just going to have to try and wait till morning. So effectively we huddled up, Aaron took us through some Qigong Qi movements. He went into action man mode actually at that point, like that when everything had to get sorted out, Aaron just hit this other, this yeah, after we got him out of the cravats, so I think it probably woke him up a little bit. Um, just went into turbo mode. We gathered all the last bits of food we had, just like little ends of bars huddled in together, took us through some sort of warming movements because it's great. We're in summit suits, luckily. Um, we're in 8,000 meter summit suits um, that Berg had sized us up with and they ended up saving our lives in the end. But if you're not creating the warmth inside the suit, then you're going to die. And and we knew that if we, we all fell asleep, we wouldn't wake up because mm. um, you know that would have been the case. So We kept each other awake all night and we all sort of went through these different periods of you know, Aaron would be keeping everyone awake and doing his qigong, gong and then beetle, would, then, then Aaron would go really tired. Then it'd be beetle. And then, and then it'd be my turn and then it'd be big Raj, And, but, and then, then it seemed like an hour later to me, but obviously it wasn't, it was 12 hours later. We saw the sort of glow coming up over the mountains on the far side. And we knew weird. We had made it through the night and once the warmth hit again. And the funny thing is we weren't hungry or thirsty by that point. We'd gone complete survival mode. Our bodies had gone into survival mode and, and then we had the chopper coming up the valley. at um, It wasn't until like 10 a.m., was it, the next day. They eventually got there to us. Um, and the funny thing was, the chopper, I, I, we can laugh about it now, but the chopper landed on the crevasse, um, on the crevasse field. an amazing Austrian mm-hmm. pilot. Um, they fly over from the Alps to do the season there. And he, we had to crawl to the helicopter because the helicopter dipped into the snow and the blades are not far off the ground. So he's like, you chop your head off. So I'm crawling underneath these blades and me and Aaron got into the helicopter first. And, uh, he, t- he tried to take off and he realized we were too heavy. So he was like, right, you out. So the <laughs> door opened and I got booted out of the helicopter. <laughs> and I'm just sort of lying on the, lying on the floor. And then Aaron t- get, gets taken off first. But then the guy comes back one by one, pulls us off the mountain. We fly down to base camp. And it was when we flew down, you realized how far we'd come and how big the sort of scenery is um, and how small dots we were in this mega landscape with no one around us. Um, But it wasn't until I got out of the helicopter at base camp that I realized really it hit me because all of our, the rest of our Nepali team had laid out prayer flags because they, we were out of radio contact with them for over 24 hours. They thought we were all dead. So they'd spent the night up praying for us. So it was like, Oh, sorry, lads. (laughs) Didn't mean to put you through that. Um, and we were a hell of a mess by that point. I mean, my face fell off about three times. Aaron nearly lost a foot to Frostbite. But all in all, considering what we've been through, the fact we were all down at base camp, smiling, having a cup of tea, just going, what the hell just happened? Um, was an amazing result and and wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Aaron, if it wasn't for Beta, if it wasn't for Big Raj, if it wasn't, for you know, we got us, We got each other through that. Um, so it was an incredible bonding experience.
2: So, right, there's so much to unpack there. I'm not going <laughs> to even <laughs> pretend otherwise. And again, going back to what we talked about earlier in terms of everything's relative to what you're used to, that's just crazy shit. Anyway, just trying to visualize what that looked like and what that felt like. Was it just you guys with some supplies and your suits did you have tents did you have lights did you have anything i'm I'm just trying to visualize the the darkness on the side of a mountain doing (laughs) (laughs) qigong so i'm not yeah i'm I'm laughing i'm not i'm not laughing at qigong i'm not laughing at the situation i'm just trying to understand what that might have looked like and felt like as i am as i'd imagine people listening to this would be trying to <laughs>
3: visualize. Yeah, when we, um, we, we found a safe little spot on the, edge of the, on the edge of the mountain that we knew there wasn't any crevasses directly around us. Um, we'd been stood there previously before we, we went to try and rescue the guy who fell in the crevasse. We'd been stood in that area for half an hour, 40 minutes. So we kind of knew at a bit of a space that was relatively safe. Um, and once I'd fallen down the crevasse, um, and on, as we were going to go and try and rescue the other guide, we just decided, right, there was no point in us moving anywhere else. So we stayed in this one spot. What we had was um, our summit suits on. We had our backpacks, our day bags, but within them was, we had a few hand warmers and uh, we had our head torches, hats, um, maybe some spare bits of, um, of clothing, just like a spare kind of uh, waterproof jacket, which wouldn't really offer much, but actually was quite useful as a windbreaker. Um so, yeah, we we were pretty minimal at that point. We didn't have any food, no tents, um, no blankets. And it really was like, we're going to have to stick this out um, for the night, um, knowing that it was going to be minus 25, minus 30, depending on wind chill factor. I mean, we were extremely lucky that the weather was so clear. Um, and then so I I kind of went into that kind of protection mode because Ed was in a pretty bad way. He wasn't much use at that point. Uh, Beetle, uh, the cameraman, was was vomiting blood. So... Um, It was kind of down to me to make a bit of a plan and try and get everything straight. So I got everyone's backpacks off. We sat on them. So we were off the cold snow, put all the extra layers on, got all the rations together and basically made a plan to to settle in for the night. So I sat on one side, on the wind side, put Ed in the middle because Ed was shaking. Um, His nervous system had kind of kicked in. So he was being a bit sick and pretty delirious for a long period. And then on the far side was the cameraman and he was a bit smaller. So I kind of took the wind side a little bit um, and we just huddled for warmth and, and got as tight as we could um, and then it just was regularly kind of all rocking back and forth in uh, in a group and then the qigong and the breath work so we were doing different versions of breath work to try and heat heat you up so obviously the downsuit we needed to create warmth within that so we were doing some quite dynamic breathing techniques and then really simple movements to to try and create some warmth as well. Every day on the mountain pretty much previous to that we'd done a version of qigong and breathwork all of us together in the mornings or in the evenings and we built up kind of a list of of movements and stuff and so it was then really familiar it wasn't like i was teaching it new to the guys they knew what they had to do they could put it into action and it was never taught for that point i never thought it would be right this is going to save our lives on the mountain but but actually you know that breathwork and qigong was a big part of um of why we're still here really and and it kept us mentally quite stable as well
1: um I was going to say that. I think it gave us a focus as well. It was something to do. It was kind of like, right, and Aaron was leading it, and he was like, breathe in for this long, breathe out for that long. Do we going to do, right, 30 pumps and things like that? Um, <clears throat> but I still can't believe, in hindsight, that how long we were out there, and I think we were just also delirious. Because, like, by the time the sun came up, um, weirdly, because Aaron had basically looked after me all the day before, him and Beta were passed out, and I was taking selfies, so it was like everyone went through <laughs> this like weird, this weird cycle of, um, getting through it. And I think I think Aaron. To be fair to to when the c saw the sun coming, you were like, right, I can, my turn. <laughs> now everyone's made it. Everyone's alive. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. It was pretty crazy. To be fair,
2: it is funny. So I think it was last August, Aaron. We we had you on the podcast and we talked about Qigong and various other things. Did you ever think that you'd be using that <laughs> technique to save people's lives in the middle of the Himalayas? It's 6,000 feet, uh, 6,000 meters, sorry, doing injustice.
3: No, I never knew that my Qigong training <laughs> would come in such use. <laughs> Literally life-saving. I mean, that's one of the things though, about, about Qigong and the breathwork. My Qigong master talks to me about kind of the way it was used in extreme. Extreme training, so for like martial art training, but also uh, you know extreme control over over your body and its functions. And one of the things they do um, in in part of the kung fu training is they would put you into into the snow naked and throw a wet blanket over you, and you weren't allowed to come out until you dried the blanket. So that was like the focus of mind and the breathwork techniques. You're creating so much heat with just the breath and the mind that you can dry this wet blanket on your body. So like all these things I'd I'd known were possible and it was just actually you know putting that into into practice probably not to quite the same degree but enough to keep our you know enough to keep our, our core body temperature uh you know and keep ourselves alive was was uh quite profound really and i i really enjoyed coming back and re- reflecting back on that part of the process and actually you know this stuff really works it reinforces um a lot of the philosophies and a lot of things i've been learning um and i'm uh you know it was an amazing amazingly tough experience but but I'm kind of glad that we went through it because everyone is absolutely fine at the other side and we can reflect on um, on that for, for a long time to come. I
0: was going to say, there must be a lot of reflection in in the immediate time, short time afterwards, and then sort of longer term looking back and just there must be a lot of lessons taken from that, from a personal perspective, as well as doing the whole thing again just the next time you're on the mountain, but... But I imagine also emotionally you must have been really shattered by the time. You know, you have that elation that you're back at base camp having a cup of tea and then that crash afterwards and that realisation that, shit, we could have been four icicles on a, on a mountainside not to
2: come back. Yeah. Sorry to jump in, Paul, but that was one of my questions. Did you think you might die when you were huddled together? Uh-uh. Did, did it cross your mind? Um- <laughs>
1: No, at no point did it cross my mind. But I think I was too tired to think that. I don't. I don't know about Aaron, but in hindsight, you realise how close you are. But I that, I that I can understand why there's a lot of bodies on Everest, for example, and other places because there was times when I sat down and I thought, you know what, it'd be probably easier if I just had a little nap now. And that's probably what goes yeah. through people's minds. And you have to tell yourself, no, that is what you know. That you'll end up dead if you do that. It's not a right. I'm going to. I'm gonna give up and die now. It's just you're so exhausted, your body just takes every night, like, oh, you know, I'll just have a little and then it's over. And I think there was probably lots of times that could happen, but we were very conscious, and Aaron was drilling it into us that you know if that happened we'd be in trouble. And I think that's why it was really beneficial that there was three of us or four of us with Big Raj, not one of us. Because if it was just one of us, it would have been a lot harder to keep keep yourself awake for the night.
3: Yeah. I mean, so just so you guys know, Big Raj is our is our lead guide. Um, he originally went and rescued his his friend from the crevasse and they went back to go get some help for us. And so he, Big Rose actually arrived back with us at about three in the morning and spent the last four or five hours to sunrise with us. Um, but we went through a good kind of five or six hours, just the three of us on that, on that part. And at no yeah. point was I worried about me. I genuinely was worried about the other guys, about Ed, about Ed and, and the cameraman, because Ed and Beetle were both showing signs of... of could have been, you know, uh, mountain sickness, hypothermia. You know, it's we're not sure. Ed, Ed was shaking quite a lot to start with and being sick um, and very incoherent. We actually know that that was actually his nervous system just completely overworked, um, and that's why his kind of everything has just shut down. Um, but obviously, Beetle was he pushed himself hard, and he was you know he was throwing up blood and he was completely exhausted as well. So, in my in my eyes, I was just looking after them. That was my job. I was there to make sure they were okay and I was keeping everyone awake and the guys just keep responding to me because if you fall asleep, no, I need to, I need to keep you, you present and
0: coherent. So I
3: purpose for a long period of time.
0: Yeah, that, that, that purpose really helped you because you're not thinking about all the nastiness that could happen. You've got that focus, right? I just need to see switched on to care for these two guys. And having that focus makes a really big difference.
3: Yeah, it definitely helped me to um, not think about anything but that you know if I, I may have let my mind drift and thought about family or thought about you know death and things like, I, I don't know what I, where I would have gone but because I had that purpose I, I stayed mm. focused on that and it didn't allow me to, to drift away from that and, and it, like I said it wasn't until the morning till the sun started to come up where I was just oh thank god I mean I just kind of I, I just knew I could relax then my nervous system was allowed to shut down um, and I was completely shattered by that point and then Emotionally, I was pretty strong until, because I was the first one in the helicopter to land. When I came back to the base camp, as I got off the helicopter, loads of people, our, our guides and some other guides that were on the mountain from another group, they ran towards me and grabbed me and carried me basically off the helicopter. And they kind of explained to me, they thought they thought that we died. We didn't know if we were coming back in body bags or humans. Yeah. So it's like, I was, that hit me. I was overwhelming. I was, I was welling up a lot. I was, but I didn't even have, I didn't have any, I thought I was crying, but I didn't have any, energy to cry I didn't have any tears I hadn't, pe- I hadn't peed in like
1: so years. dehydrated
3: I was so dehydrated I hadn't been to the toilet in two and a half days it's like so there wasn't any tears left to come out but it was it was an amazingly overwhelming experience of just like you know um positivity love I've never felt like that amount of love from that many people at that one time it was it was amazing and you know same way when Ed and the other guys followed me it was just like you know if the helicopter was just like this personal relief but then for all these other people as well. It was just, yeah, that was, that was the, the heaviest emotional experience I had on that trip. I'm, I'm going to ask what seems like
2: a stupid question because I think I know the answer, although you might surprise me. Um, was it worth it overall in, in terms of that experience and everything you've described? Yes, you've, you've, you've beat the record. You've raised money. You've done all this good, but you could have died. Was it was it worth that risk? You didn't die. Uh, you're here. We're chatting.
1: In in hindsight, because we're sat here chatting, absolutely. <laughs> in fact, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have had it. I wouldn't have had it pan out any differently, to be honest. Because, like we said, what you know, the you know, Paul Paul touched on. You know what the emotional change. I think I came back and changed a load <laughs> of things around my life. I canceled a load of work that I had coming up. I realigned with my purposes again. It gave me a big reminder of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Put a lot, lent a lot more weight into the things that are really adver- uh, that, that I find valuable that don't necessarily aren't financially rewarding. Um, but it, it, it was a good reality. It was a good, you know, cause even though I had had that before, you obviously lose yeah. sight sometimes. You need a reminder. And I know it's a bit of a drastic way to go around having a reminder. And it wasn't planned. We didn't pick the gnarliest mountain in the world. We weren't trying to climb K2. It was just that things didn't go to plan. So the fact that we there wasn't anyone on the mountain for two and a half years that's because of covid it's not and it's not a very it's not a very well climbed mountain anyway but it's not supposed to be as dangerous as it was a lot of things went against us so i wouldn't consciously take that sort of risk again because i do it made, it made me think that you know i do love my life i do have a lot i want to be here and i want to be here for the other people and it made me think about you know the the loss and the pain it would have caused others as well you know if we'd just slipped off and gone to sleep you know me and Aaron are lucky to have people that love us in terms of our family and our partners and um it wouldn't have been fair but it wasn't planned um but having said that you know now it's not leaving as much to chance you know if we're going to climb more mountains it will be ones that are well trodden and we will climb later in the season when all the routes and camps have been set up uh, just to put it into context, him and the mountain is a 7,000 meter mountain, but I spoke to Big Raj yesterday, our guide, because um, I'm going back out in October just for a trekking trip with a, with our charity. Uh, and he said there were 17 more attempts to climb the mountain that um, after us and no one summited, uh, including a few of his Nepali climbing guides, partners who are serious climbers and had summited Manasalu two weeks before, which is an 8,000 meter mountain. And they said it was nowhere near as hard as Himlung in the way it was because wow. of the camp not being set up, because of the snow conditions and because no one knowing their way through the crevasse field. So that just puts into context. you know, it, I told Aaron that this morning and it was quite relieving because <laughs> we were like, were we just a bunch of jokers on the side of this mountain causing trouble for everyone? But um turns out, you know, that, that's, that's the nature of the beast sometimes. Things don't go to plan, but it, you're right. It has made me contemplate especially if it's worth putting yourself in situations like that, I'm, I know a lot of people in this world now who I've, you know, sort of been chucked headfirst into this, into this outdoor world and this mountaineering world. And they've got to know some pretty gnarly characters who do this for a living, who are doing the real extreme end of, uh, of what goes on. And the sort of correlation I can draw between the people who are really pushing the limits and risking their life, because it doesn't matter how good a climber you are. If you get hit on the head by a rock or get taken out by an avalanche you're done. So you've got to take a. You've got to have a certain element of risk. That is their sole purpose. That is what they do. You know that is they. They're willing to take that risk because that's what they've always done. And a lot. Of, it's also a reason why a lot of people, when they have kids who are in that space, will stop taking those risks because they have a bigger purpose. And I, I, I don't want to speak for Aaron, but I think we have bigger purposes outside of just trying to climb as high as possible. And I think this was a good reality check to make us realise that. It wouldn't have been worth it if it had gone a different way. But you can't live your life regretting things. And if you're living fear all the time, you'll never up in, end up in situations that do make you contemplate your life and put make those formative changes that are going to add a positive string moving forward. And and so it's something that we don't regret. I'm going to speak, Varen, here. We don't regret at all. But it's not something we would choose to repeat or consciously choose to repeat. Yeah.
0: Um, how, how long did it take you to tell your loved ones you got back how dicey it was? <laughs> well,
1: um, I, so we'd been off grid for two weeks. They hadn't heard from us for two weeks. We'd given them a date we were planning on summiting. Now, actually, in hindsight, this is probably a good thing because if this had happened in the Alps and we'd gone missing, they would have heard from the moment we got missing and would have had all of that time panicking about us. But the first they heard from us was when I rang my wife on the satellite phone and was like, First of all, we're all alive. What does mean you're all alive? I was like, I'll explain later, but look, everyone's fine. Um But this happened, you know, and it was uh so that was a good way round to do it. Although it was funny, she said she woke up in the middle of the night and had this weird feeling, and it was a day later than we were supposed to have summited and all of those sorts of things. But it was easier for them to hear about it for the first time from us. Alive after it had happened, rather than from search and rescue or from someone else who was on the ground whilst it was going on.
0: What about you, Aaron?
3: Yeah, it was. We didn't really have any contact really um, until we got back to Camp Campendon, so two, two or three days after we'd we'd um, been rescued. Um, but actually, same as Ed, it, it's so strange. Three, three occurrences, four occurrences. My my partner, my girlfriend, my mum, my sister, and my best friend and his girlfriend all the same night had woken up in the middle of the night and they'd all been like, something's wrong with Aaron and Ed, like something's wrong on the mountain. They all had really? that experience. And so they were all really worried. My my girlfriend was messaging Ed's wife going like, you know, Are they, have you heard from them? And she's like, no, I'll tell you when I've heard from them. But she was just, she just felt like there was something wrong. So it's very strange how we're all so connected on that Yeah, front. Um, Was that on mm-hmm. the night that you were supposed to summit? That was on the night that we were up there. Yeah, when we were... Yeah. Um, when did we it all... all... Did they all know that that was when you were supposed to summit? Uh, only Antonia, my girlfriend, only, only she knew, I think, that that was the rough date. My mum and my friend didn't have a clue, and my sister didn't That's, know. that's interesting.
1: Yeah. We and hadn't given you... them the exact date. We said yeah. a rough date, and actually it was, it was the night after, the one where we were stuck on the mountain, was the night that everyone had that cor- like correlating moment. So... It, was, it wasn't just, oh, I'm supposed to have heard from them now. It was kind of like, I've got this weird feeling, which is interesting. Yeah. There that is um, yeah, so
0: much stuff out there that we have no idea about. It's, yeah. I was going to say the same thing. I'm,
2: I'm, I wasn't dismissing that and saying, oh, it's just because they knew there were so many. It was the opposite. I was, yeah. I was, I was about to say, there's, there's stuff out there <laughs> <That's> <laughs> spiritually no doubt. In, in the ether that we can't comprehend.
3: <laughs> And that's yeah. the thing about Nepal and climbing out there. You know, we, you got a lot of respect for the mountains. We had, um, you know, a, a llama lama that came up from the the local um, monastery who came and blessed us all but before we went up there. We left offerings for the mountain. You know, there's a real beautiful spiritual aspect to that. And you know, there was a little bit of me that believes that the mountain looked after us after our offering and that we were, yeah, we were, um, that we were safe in the mountain's hands in some respects. You know.
1: If the weather had changed, we wouldn't be here. Like we had a completely clear night and yes, that meant cold, but if there was wind and, and you know, any sort of you know adverse weather conditions, it would have been a different story. And also like there were moments when we, I remember we walked into the Foo Valley and, um, which is this amazing remote place that Nepal didn't know about, but it's, it's there's ancient monasteries ruined on the, on the sides of the cliffs. Um, so there's been monasteries there since they, you know, for thousands of years. Um, and you could tell why we walked into this valley, and it there was just this feel. everyone just went dead silence, and there was just this overwhelming feeling. And we were looking at each other, and I, I've actually got a video of going, and we're all just looking at each other completely spe- speechless. We're like, Can you feel that? We're like, Yeah, what is going on? I've never felt a feeling like that before in my life, but that speaks to what we were just talking about there. There's so much going on that we don't know. Um, yeah,
2: and I think you only you only get to experience that if you're prepared to go that little bit further and you're prepared to not necessarily physically, but mentally, spiritually, open your mind to it, or just physically go that a little bit further. And you find that there's something else. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. And I don't think anybody does, but Yeah, there is, there there just is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. That's it. Aaron, Ed said he changed quite a few things about his life when he came back. Did it have a similar impact on you?
3: I definitely had some ideas to make changes. <laughs> 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 Whether that came to light or not? Uh, you know, being up there and um, being uh, you know as close as we were to um, having some serious problems, um, you know, it, it made it, it does make you reflect and make you think on on what things are important. Um, and. It's just difficult coming back and running a business, you know. I've got things to do, got overheads, got bills. You know, there's a lot you can't you can't take away. So some of the things I wanted to change um, and wanted to do haven't yet been possible, but they still sat there, and I'm, I am working towards making some positive changes and stuff. But it's very difficult with certain responsibilities that I have with the, with the premises of gyms and things. Yeah, uh, it takes a lot of pressure, but um, I've definitely value um a lot of the more of the space i really have crafted more space that's something i've managed to do um and have a bit more me time and some days i just go out for an hour walk i'll be sat on the commute i'll be like i need to just go do it for a walk and i'll just go out for an hour now and i'll take myself away and make sure i do those things so we had such a beautiful time out there three weeks really without any contact with the outside world and you know that is such an important thing that I really value, having that time to me and having time to reflect on things properly and not just cram more and more information from my computer screen or from other people at me. So that's one thing that I've managed to stick to. The other bits, you know, about kind of crafting more time for family and friends is just not at the moment possible for me because of work. But, I, you know, I am working to make that possible. just need to remember that that's what I'm aiming for, not just continue working <laughs> and not yeah, make, making that happen, right? That-
1: that off grid thing was it was is pretty amazing. It's happened a couple of times for me now. It takes about three or four days of, even though you're off grid, still your brain doesn't adjust. You're still waiting for that email to land, or someone to call, or something to happen. But then after three or four days, I remember we were all sat round base camp, and I can't remember. I think it was you or someone said to um, to Ben, we were like, you know that voice in your head. Has anyone noticed it's completely stopped? <laughs> and there was just complete silence, even in your own, that internal narr- monologue that's always going on had stopped. And actually when you noticed it was complete silence, it was quite eerie. But after a while, once you relaxed into it, it was just amazing. And it took three or four days and you realized that separation and how important and how much extra noise we have in everyday life that isn't natural to us. So to be able to take that space and that break as a re- mental reset actually allowed me for, you know to come back um, just way more refreshed meant psychologically, even, even though what we'd been through way more psychologically refreshed and refreshed and ready to launch myself into different things. And it's one of the reasons why I tried to go to Nepal once a year, every year, because I'm not that person who's skilled enough to sit at home and meditate for 10, you know, 10 minutes. And some people can, and they're well-practiced at it and they can take those mini breaks in the day and reap the rewards from it. It takes me having to go to the other side of the world and put my phone in the box for three weeks but if that's what it takes and that's what i'll do but I, I, I do massively realize the benefits and coming back the funniest one was beetle so our cameraman he's only 25 amazing guy but we caught up about two weeks after we got back just i was on a, us as lot on a zoom call and we we're like how's everyone getting on and beetle's like, i'm finding this harder than climbing the mountain he's like i'm going to <laughs> cricket training with all of my mates and they just want to talk about what well, film they've watched in the cinema, and I just want to talk about the meaning of life. But I've got no one to talk <laughs> about it with. <laughs> oh god, yeah. he cracks me up.
0: So I can I can understand why he's saying that, especially at such a young age, where perhaps uh-huh. perspective isn't there yet. <laughs> but to, to, to go through that, it does it. it changes your complete frame of, uh, of focus on the world. I think, like, also
3: he was on a trip with guys who are older than him and particularly Ed and myself are very open in the conversations we have we talk about a lot of different things there's a lot of posing of questions whilst we were walking along talking about people's failures and successes and what does that mean to them so you know from someone who's 25 probably didn't get what we know he didn't get those conversations much with any of his friends so it was a real different experience for him. and then having that experience of you know kind of almost dying on a mountain thrown into it as well as this (laughs) monstrous trip that we've been on you know it was you know it was huge impact on his life and so you're going back to n- normality, but <laughs> like, a bit, a bit
0: the of the sh- changed. Yeah, for him. I mean, that's a really beautiful experience that he's been able to have with you guys. Definitely. I had this keep recurring question that I have. That night you were sat on the mountain waiting to get through it. What was the sky like?
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, the sky was incredible, but we didn't notice until about four in the morning because we were also looking at looking at the floor and breathing so hard but um some of the night skies out there were unbelievable and it was another one of those nights but it wasn't a night for stargazing it was uh to be honest most of it is a bit of a blur to me anyway um, I can remember sections of it but it seemed to go really quickly the night so I was out of it basically for for a lot of the time but I mean the night skies in general were are an absolute joke I've got a photo actually um if you go on my Instagram after this and scroll down a couple of pages, there's a photo. We took a base camp, a long exposure one. And it's like, what? There's actually that many stars up there. It's uh, it was pretty insane. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what's, what's next for you as a pair
1: or as in doing tools? So individually for me, I've got, I'm going to Iceland in a couple of weeks. We've got a few more trips with the charity. Um, I am actually doing a climbing challenge in September, but it's more actual technical climbing. Um, that's with, with Burkhouse and a guy called Leo Holding, who's one of their athletes who's taken to hanging me off cliffs now. He thinks it's quite amusing. So <laughs> I'm just trying to get better at, um, the art of it i'm really fascinated it's not just about trying to take height records off you know that's one thing the high altitude mountaineering side of things is is incredible for being in those places and it's why we go to remote spaces not just try and climb a high peak that's got a you know footpath to the top um but I want to learn more of the technical side of things and the art form of climbing it's been I've really enjoyed being a beginner again in a space I think obviously you're not but after you've done something professionally sport wise for 10 years and you know Aaron can speak to also with S&C and all of those sorts of things there's always something to learn but it's not like every day's every day's uh, there's all these new amazing things going on and I'm getting to hang around with people who've who are experts in their field. And it's like being that Academy rugby player, your first day of training again, when you're surrounded by internationals and I've just been a sponge and, and, um, so I'm really enjoying that side of things. So the, the, there's more of that. And then in terms of Nepal, I'm going back in October to do the Manaslu circuit with the charity, which will be a lot more civilized than what we did. But again, quite remote, um, looking forward, looking forward to that. And Aaron, it, um, for me and Aaron, it'll involve some training probably in between these trips Probably a little bit of drinking as well at some points, not as much as we used to. Um, and then hopefully I can coax him up another big mountain next towards the back end of next year if his if his missus and his mum will let him go.
3: <laughs> it was a, a touchy subject with the family. Uh, after an <laughs> experience, it's very difficult to to get them to, to be in agreement with many of these trips. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, over the next six months to a year, just keep working on, on business, a lot of personal stuff. Um, I am doing a lot of stuff with kind of men's mental health. And so using Qigong and breathwork and cold water to continue continue that, which I'm absolutely loving doing. We're just trying to expand that a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a lot of work-based, but really rewarding personal stuff to do. And then uh, perhaps we might think about another mountain. We'll have to see. I the Pratton's <laughs> literally this morning. <laughs> so it was just a message to me we went for, we went for some brunch today but there was a message free that was just let me know that there was an option to go higher at some point potentially so we'll have to see how I feel about it at the time and, and who we can convince but never say never um you know I, I do love the mountains and um like we say I'm, I'm not someone who will risk myself um and anything for I don't you know I'm not that much into kind of extreme sports you know, bungee jumping, mountain biking none of that kind of stuff but um, so I don't want to put myself in unnecessary risk. But um, you know, we'll look at all the options and, and see what we get to at the time. And, yeah, you, and you say you say that, Aaron. But
2: Himalayan Himalayan mountain climbing is pretty extreme.
1: <laughs> um, no, don't tell him that. It's yeah. not
3: <laughs> just once every once every couple of years. I mean, not not every day extreme, right? Yeah. yeah, just say you'll go if
0: you can have
1: NIMS with you as well. <laughs> yeah, I've got to try and keep it up with NIMS though
3: he'll just take us some gnarly routes. that was the problem he won't he won't let us do yeah, <laughs> I'm
0: just gonna I'd, break through the snow and come on catch up yeah yeah, yeah. i just
3: think
2: Don- donkey 19 has a legacy to upkeep
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah gotta go back and see oh. dill mate
2: exactly
0: yeah
2: um thanks guys um Where can people find you if they want to find out more? Um, Obviously, we'll tag both of you. We'll tag the charity, um, Millimeters to Mountains and in the posts and things. But Aaron,
3: where can people find you, firstly? In my gym, often. My gym tonic in Bath, you can find me there. Uh, Or on Instagram, it's Aaron. uh, Sorry, Qigong with Aaron now. I've changed it. Qigong with Aaron. Um, And I teach Qigong for a company called um, Hey You Fit, which is um, a Chinese medicine-based um, company, all about kind of looking after yourself using ancient techniques such as breastwork and qigong and um, self-healing techniques.
1: Cool. Um yeah, and so all my socials at Jackson 8 or then um, the charities Millimeters to Mountains. And on that, you know, we 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 obviously run trips to our beneficiaries, anyone who's been through trauma um so if you know someone who might benefit from something like that then do check out the website and have a look at the beneficiary application process but also we run five trips a year all over the world so we've been to morocco this year already we're going to uh we've done been to the alps we're going to iceland we're going to nepal again and it's not all life-threatening trips you know that wasn't a charity trip that was a personal challenge trip so they're more civilized than that uh, but for all varying abilities across the year so if you want to cut if people want to come and get involved and have a sort of um, have a, you know, a proper adventure, but also in the name of a good cause, then check out the website, check out the trips and we'd love to welcome people along. But yeah, if you want to keep following the journey, then um, social media and Instagram these days is obviously the best place to do it. I'm not on TikTok yet. I think Aaron's, Aaron's on there, aren't you, mate? No, not yet. We've a dan- not yet. dancing bear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day. <laughs> uh, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, guys. Thanks,
1: guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Yeah, pleasure.